Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Sean O'Brien. So like, we're like dancing, we're having a good time, we're singing in this car. One of the dudes that's sitting next to me pisses his pants in the backseat. He's having such a good time. It is all over the backseat. I've never been more okay with somebody else pissing my pants. That and more. But before that, what's the best way to ensure that Risk keeps on keeping on in 2023? going to patreon.com slash risk and becoming a member and checking out the dozens of hours of bonus stories and check-ins over their fantastic stories you haven't heard on the podcast and conversations with staff and storytellers, access to more of our storytelling training resources, you know, our video courses, ad-free versions of the weekly podcast, We keep hearing forecasts that it could be a tough year ahead for the whole podcasting industry. I mean, who knows, you know, about that kind of thing. It has been a very lean couple of years for us here already, but we've pulled out all the stops to keep the show going, and we're hugely grateful for those folks who become members over at patreon.com slash risk. And those folks who change the amount they're donating each month to a higher number, it really does ensure that the show goes on. And if you want to make a one-time donation, that's at paypal.me slash risk show. We'll be right back. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Now here's the show. Wow. 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 Wow.
kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is Charming Hostess, behind me now, a song that our audio editor, John LaSala, has wanted to get on Risk for a long time, so here it is, goddammit. Here it is. Anyway, we're calling this week's episode Staff Picks 2022 <laughs> Part 2. Yeah, I know it, it It has already been 2023 for a few days already when this episode's coming out. But we haven't finished looking back at some of our favorite hidden gems from 2022. Those stories from last year that maybe didn't get quite the love we thought they deserved in our best of voting and episodes. So we're dusting them off and sending them back your way. This time with some bonus bits, these were chosen by our staff members because these stories were particularly meaningful to them. Last week we heard from B. Van Slee and David Crabb and Hope Brush and Jeff Barr, our audio editors, chose those stories and said some words about them. But this week we have two more. So in a little bit, we're going to hear from Sean O'Brien, who you may remember told a story called Who's We on our effed up episode this past September because Sean was seriously effed up <laughs> in the story. And our editor, Taj Easton, is going to intro that story with an explanation of why it is his staff pick. But first, we're going to revisit a story called We Who Believe in Freedom, told by Nib Stroop. It was part of our Fight the Power episode back in July of last year. Nibs grew up in Arkansas, a white kid growing up in the very segregated Jim Crow South. And he told us this story of a very eye-opening experience he had when he was much younger one summer in Brooklyn. You know, this was half a century ago, but only a few blocks from where I live right now in Bed-Stuy. And our own J.C. Cassis and John LaSala both wanted to highlight this story before 2023 really gets underway and to shine even more light on it we're going to hear a bit from our good friend, Dr. Ray Christian, as well, who had a little chat with Nibs about his remarkable story. So stick around after to hear a bit of that. Hey, this is JC Cassis. I'm the producer and business manager of Risk. And I would say that one of my picks for one of the best stories we've aired this year that was not on a best of episode was We Who Believe in Freedom by Nib Stroop. I just think that it covered so many aspects of the conversation about racism in America that need to be highlighted again and again and again until we can get to a place where everyone believes each other's lived experiences with racism in this country um you know it's 2022 and there's still people who think that we don't deal with racism in this country anymore or that white people deal with more racism in more consequential ways than people of color and all these things that are just not really helping move the conversation forward so i love that in nibs's story he talked about the experience of being taught racism 
as a white person by people you love and trust and then having to unlearn those things when you have a different lived experience that conflicts with that and then being all excited to spread the good news to other white people who are just really stuck in a racist place and then expecting sharing your lived experience to actually move them and then sometimes it does and sometimes it doesn't and um, having to deal with the fallout of that. You know, I'm very proud to be working on this show because we highlight stories like that and information like that that I think is really helping people. And um, it's great that risk can help people learn from other people's lived experiences without the listeners having to live through it themselves. But I think what Nib's story reminds us is that sometimes not even that can reach people. Um, But luckily, lots of risk stories do reach people and change them. And I'm just so grateful for that. And I'm so proud of that. And so I want to thank everybody who listens to the show and passes the show on to other people to listen to, because I think we are having a positive impact in the world. And I'm very proud of that. So here's to another great year of risk ahead of us, hopefully. We entered the Jarvie Room at Lafayette Avenue Presbyterian Church in Brooklyn on a hot June day in 1966. My friend David Billings and I had just walked the six blocks from the Mance apartment on Washington Street to the church at South Oxford in Lafayette. Those six blocks were a feast for our eyes and our senses as Southern white boys from segregated society. Uh, We had all kinds of noises and sights and sounds, noises like cars and traffic and different dialects and language, sights like brownstones jammed up and many different people, different colors, uh, smells of the city life, foods and people and car exhaust and garbage, all kinds of quick movement. I was from a town of 12,000 people in a farming community, so it was kind of a, a veritable banquet for we guys from the South and began to separate ourselves from small town experience just a little bit. We were in the city, and it was a a wowing experience, and I knew we were in a a new world. David and I were 19 years old. We had just finished our sophomore years in college. We had come to Lafayette Avenue to be on the staff for their children's summer program, which served black youth in the neighborhood, including Bedford-Stuyvesant, which was at that point a pretty uh, difficult and poor place to live. I didn't really know it then as as being a place where uh, black people lived and uh, where people struggling financially lived. It just seemed to me to be so many people, so many apartments, so many buildings, uh, and so black. The Jarvie room which we entered that day was a parlor in its former heyday. It was on the first floor of the church. It had uh, couches and rugs and a piano, but now it was a gathering and meeting room. As we entered that room, the first thing that I noticed was the racial mix. There were about 50 young adults and older youth who would be part of the summer staff. And that staff, much to my surprise, was only 60% white, which sounds like a lot, but to my white eyes, it was not a lot. And so I was kind of astonished there were so many black people in the room. Uh, But inside myself, I'm feeling uncertain about this. Can I do this? I've never experienced this. I don't know what's going on. I was, of course, a little scared, but David, my friend, was with me, so that helped a lot. Uh, But I was a kind of mixture of anxiety and excitement on one level. I had never experienced anything like this before. I guess another fortunate part is that the senior pastor was a white guy, so that made me feel a little bit more comfortable. 
And then he made an announcement that made me feel uh, more uncomfortable, and that was the day-to-day -day leaders of the staff were two African-Americans who seemed like older folk to me. They were in their early 30s. Looking back on it, I wonder why I was surprised. I was coming to a church in a black neighborhood where 95% of the kids in the program were black. But I was bringing my white supremacy mindset with me. I came from the strictly segregated South in 1966. It had been 12 years since Brown versus Board of Education in 1954. But my part of the South, the Arkansas side of the Mississippi River Delta, was still under strict white control. The Civil Rights Bill in 1964, the Voting Rights Act in 1965, but still where I was from, white folk were in control totally. But when I entered that room in 1966, I began to know that I was entering a different place in my own consciousness. We came into the room and Reverend Knight, the senior white pastor, was describing the program, telling us some rules, passing out booklets about what we should be reading and thinking and some rules for living. Uh, and he noted that most of the staff were white uh, and from around the country, but that we'd be also working with some older youth. And then Reverend Knight said, I'd like to introduce you to the people who are going to be your supervisors and who are going to guide you through all this and who are going to save your lives. And this is uh, Gene Hatley and Nancy Walker. They're going to be your supervisors. They're the day-to-day -day leaders of the program, so you'll need to listen to them and get to know them, and you will be under their supervision. I was astonished that I would be led by African-Americans because in my segregated world, that never happened. I would never be led by black people. Gene Hatley and Nancy Walker, who uh, I described, or felt then were older African-Americans. They were in their middle 30s, so they're obviously not older. Neither one of them were big, so that helped. But my immediate response was, oh man, I am in an, a whole new world. It didn't scare me as much as I thought it might have, but it did kind of astonish me, sort of like Alice in Wonderland, that I'm in a, a whole new world that I don't know anything about. I can't get back on the plane and go back home, but I felt a little bit of that, but I, I wanted to try it out. Then they spoke and they were very good. I know white folk often tell black folk they're very articulate. I probably felt that, but they were excellent. And so they began to lay out the program and what we would be doing. Uh, they didn't address race at all in the sense of, we know that you're mostly white youth or young adults and we're African-Americans. They addressed it like we're the bosses and you do what we say. Though I didn't realize it then, entering that room on that hot June day in 1966 was like traveling through a portal or time traveling to a new planet. Those few steps into that room that day meant I could never go home again. I didn't know it on that day, but I left home forever when I walked into that room. So I grew up in a small town in Arkansas. It was on the Mississippi River Delta. It was a farming town. It was in a time of neo-slavery and white supremacy. My father abandoned my family when I was a baby, and we went to live with my great-great-aunt, my mother's great-aunt. Uh, but I was raised by women in this southern patriarchal, uh, segregated, uh, white supremacist society. So I learned and I believed the, the idea of white supremacy. And I didn't learn it and believe it because people were spanking me if I didn't. I learned it from people I loved and who loved me. And that was a very powerful force because it seeped deep down into my soul. It wasn't like I didn't believe it and resisted it, but had to act like I believed it. I believed it because it came from people that I loved. 
So white supremacy was deeply infused into my system, not by really terrible white people, but by white people who were really wonderful in my life. It's a complex and it's deep down in there. There began to be some cracks in that system. My mother was one of the uh, ones who helped to crack that system. Not a lot, but a little bit. She would never let me say the N-word in her presence. And I argued with her and told her that all my friends said it. And she said, I don't ever want to hear you saying it. And so I said it out in the world with my white friends, but I never said it in front of her. She also would not let me call any adults by their first name without their Mr. or Ms. or um, Miss. And again, I complained that uh, that was okay for white adults, but for black adults, all my friends called them by their first name, and I needed to do it, I wanted to do it. She said, you better never do it, and I better never hear about it. The other story that I remember is that when she came home from work one day, I told her, Mother, I hate Jews. And she said, Nibs, why do you hate Jews? And I said, because they're Jews. And she said, well, do you hate Raymond? And I said, no, Raymond is my friend. She said, well, do you hate Ruth? I said, no, well, Ruth's a girl, but I don't hate her. She's, she's okay. She said, Nibs, they're both Jews. And I said, no, they're not. She said, yes, they are. So you better be careful about what you think you know without knowing a lot about the subject and about who you think you hate. We were poor, so we lived in a poorer neighborhood. There were black families living a couple of blocks, really a block and a half down in a little alleyway down below our house. And I remember a black woman who was a mama used to come to our back door to get our leftover food from my mother and my great-great-aunt. I assumed for her family, I remember asking my mother why they came to the back door to get the food. And she said, uh, well, they're hungry, Nibs, and we have food that we can share with them. My mother also shared hand-me-down clothes that we had from me especially, and they used to walk in front of our house on the street. And I remember one day, I guess I was seven or eight years old, seeing a black boy wearing my old cap going down the street, and I wondered what had happened to that cap. So I ran out into the street and I snatched it off his head. My mother came out right behind me and told me to put it back right back on his head, and she got a switch and said, if you don't do it, I'm gonna switch you. I said, well, Mama, it's my duty cap. He can't wear that cap. It's mine. She said, well, I gave it to him, so he is going to wear it. And I said, no, I want mine back. And she said, well, I'm going to go get your new cap that I bought and put it on his head. If you want to wear that when you go ahead. I said, I'll do that. So she went and got the cap and put it on that little boy's head, and he went on. I, I never knew his name. In 1962, James Meredith decided to apply to his state university, which was Ole Miss, the University of Mississippi. The problem was that he was African-American from Ole Miss's point of view, so they refused to let him in. And of course, Robert F. Kennedy, the attorney general, got involved and got President Kennedy involved with Ross Barnett, the governor of Mississippi at that time. Oxford uh, was only about 60 miles from Helena, and I remember David and I and other white guys having a conversation during uh, the lunch hour in high school during this time when everything was going on. And we decided since there was a new bridge across the Mississippi River, we would go help defend white Southern manhood. And I remember David and I wanting to do that, feeling a little uncomfortable, uh, but wanting to be with our white peers. So David and I said we would go somehow. And thankfully our parents found out about it. So they forbid us all to go. So none of us went. But they had a white riot at Oxford and Ole Miss in the next couple of days. But I remember David and I talking about that, and he wondered 
why the resistance was so great to James Meredith. And I would say, well, it's obvious, isn't it? And he said, well, I don't think it's quite so obvious. I mean, I know the reason uh, why there's resistance, but I wonder what's really going on. And I, I remember thinking at that point that there was a lot more going on than I thought. But I have to say that I met my first black person in a novel that was recommended to me in high school by one of my English teachers, Vera Miller. She recommended that I read Cry the Beloved Country by Alan Payton, which was written in 1948 about apartheid developing there. And I read that book and I met my first black person. He was a minister named Reverend Stephen Kamalo. Uh, the thing that struck me in the book was that he was going to Soweto to search for his son who had been lost to the family. And that got to me, I think, because I was searching for my father. He was searching for his son. And I remember, I can just about remember the page where I looked up and thought, gosh, he sounds a lot like me. Can black people really be like me? And I didn't tell anybody about it. I wasn't gonna reveal that kind of stuff in segregated society. The other story, I guess, where I had the most intimate encounter was after President Kennedy was assassinated. By that time, my great-great-aunt had died, and so my mother had hired a woman at her shop to clean up named Miss Martha. She was an African-American woman. And as they worked together, my mother started hiring a Miss Martha to do ironing at our house. Uh, it was right after Kennedy assassination. It may have been on the day of the funeral. I can't, um, it must have been, because I remember Miss Martha crying, and I noticed her crying. So I said, uh, Miss Martha, are you sad about this? And she said, oh, oh, Nibs, yes, I really am. He was such a good man, and I can't believe they killed him. And I remember it was a little crack in that facade that I was thinking, oh, gosh, she's feeling a lot like me. And I, I you know, I'm on one level ashamed to say that, but it's, it's my experience, and that's what it was. So after I read Cry the Beloved Country, I recommended David that he read it. He read it, he wasn't quite as impressed as I was with it, but he began to, uh, we began to think about it and talk about it more when we went off to college. David, interestingly enough, went to Ole Miss. I went to Southwestern at Memphis, which is now Rhodes College, and that was in the fall of 1964 and into 1965. So we were together in a restaurant called Nick's in Helena, which is a, a end of the street drag where a lot of white guys went after their dates or movies or parties to debrief on the weekends. And at the end of the Christmas holiday, we were sitting around talking and David and I, as I said, had begun to think about a different world a little bit. And I had heard from a friend in college at Davidson actually that there was a program in Brooklyn uh, at a church there that uh, got white people, especially from the South, to come up and work in their summer program. So I said, I've heard about this church in Brooklyn. I don't know if we could get in, but I could find out information. Would you want to try that? And he said, yeah, I'd like to try it. So I found out from my friend at Davidson about the program and applied. And what excited us, I don't think we gave very much thought that we were getting out of the white supremacy area of the South as so much as we were going up to the big city. I mean, we were talking of baseball games, uh, clubs, uh, all kinds of things. And that's what really motivated us both. I left the Jarvie room after the orientation and went to the kindergarten class where I was an assistant teacher. Now all of the kids in our kindergarten class that summer were African American. As I started working with them, I noticed that they were just kids. 
Uh, we glued stuff together and colored things and we would read books to them. I remember thinking perhaps when uh, we were reading a book and they were asking questions about it, it seemed to me uh, they were the same kind of questions that I got from the white kids. Questions like, uh, why did he do that? Or why did she do that? Or why did they uh, like one another? I think there was a story about a boy and a girl uh, beginning to date or something like that. And as they asked their questions, I began to think they were the same kind of questions I got in the summer programs and the programs that I worked in my church growing up. So I had a lot to learn, uh, obviously, and I was not only a naive white boy, I was a naive small town boy in the big city. I remember another incident with some of the kids a few days later. They were playing some kind of stoop ball near the entrance to the church sanctuary, and it was Sunday, so it was getting time for worship, and Reverend Knight asked me to go out and speak to the boys and tell them to stop playing or to move on down the block and play. So I went out to tell them the move. I said, guys, the worship is about to start, so you'll uh, need to move on down the block here so we can get people into worship. And they said, well, it's a public sidewalk, so we're gonna stay where uh, we are. So then I gently put my hand on one of their shoulders to emphasize my point, and he responded, white man, don't you put your hands on me, you'll get hurt. I didn't say anything then because I was really astonished. I was kind of scared. Even though they were seven years younger than me, I was astonished that they had crossed what I considered to be a huge barrier at their audacity. And I had never experienced that uh, in growing up in Arkansas. So I just was quiet and I went in to get a black male staffer and asked him to come out and help. And he went out and shooed them off with no problem. He said, well, you, you need to do better on this. And it was an eye-opener to me. It reminded me of how much I had to learn and how much of white supremacy was still in me. They had a required reading list for the books that we would have to read, and we would talk about them each week. And they had James Baldwin on the list, and I began reading the book that they had recommended, which was The Fire Next Time, a very powerful book. It was the first time I'd ever read anything by a black writer and what a writer to start on for that kind of journey. Uh, his writing entered my soul in a brand new way. I really hadn't thought that black people could think that way or, th or that powerfully. And I remember feeling that James Baldwin was really angry in the fire next time and wondering why he was so angry. And I remember Gene, the black male leader, saying pointedly to me, you have no experience with being black. So one of the things I would advise to you this summer is to take these readings in and to learn about them and to hear that these are real people talking about real feelings. I know you've been raised in a way that you don't think that's possible, but it is, and I'm one of them. So I hope you'll learn from that. So those kind of experiences, I guess Nancy Walker, the other leader, uh, was gentler and in some ways reminded me of my mother, kind of a steady process, and she would be kind of more pastoral and with me and other white folk. And I began to think because of that, both of those, that I had a lot to learn and that in this new world, it would be possible for nibs who came up there in early 1966 to survive and still be nibs in some way when I left for the summer. So I was experiencing black leadership and black authority and black humanity and black creativity. And it was not totally shocking, but it was beginning to enter my consciousness and beginning to find its way into my seeing a whole new world. I also had a summer romance with a young black woman on the staff, and it was hard to be close with her and to hold on to my white supremacy. Now, some of my white forebears had done that for generations, but I couldn't do it. 
Margie worked in another department in the summer program, but we often took field trips together, and so we were walking along together and teasing one another. Uh, I don't remember at first thinking about, oh, this is a black girl, what am I doing? I just remember being impressed that a girl was interested in me at all, so that was part of that. But early on, she teased me a lot about being kind of a white hick from the South and wondering what I was doing there, what I was learning. And I remember one conversation before we started dating where she asked me what it was like to live in a place like Helena in the segregated South. And I kind of naively, I told her, well, Margie, I, I don't really know. I mean, I, I, I know a lot of black people in their names, but I don't really know them, so I can't really talk about uh, their life. And she said, well, I'm talking about your life. What is that like? And I said, well, I was raised to believe this, and I'm, I'm here this summer to try to see if it's true, and on one level, hoping it's not true, and if it's not true, what I'm gonna do with my life, what that's gonna mean. And she said, well, I hope you'll find that it's not true, and what's true is a different understanding of your life and of life. And I remember being impressed by that, and so we kind of uh, went out together some, and I began to be aware of uh, the differences, and I never felt uncomfortable like I would have if we'd been doing it in Helena, uh, because it was such a diverse place and there were so many different kinds of folk. Uh, but I remember thinking somewhere as we were dating uh, that I had crossed the line, that I, I couldn't date her and keep those same thoughts about black people that I had brought up with me in that summer. As we began to come toward the end of the summer, and I knew David and I would be leaving, I found myself very reluctant to go on several levels. One was Margie and I were dating, and I really liked her, and she seemed to like me, so I didn't want to leave her. The other was I knew that I had crossed over, and so I didn't know what was going to happen when I went back to Helena. I didn't know how my mother would receive it, the most important person in my life. Uh, one when I told her that I had changed my mind on stuff and another that I was dating a black woman. I didn't know how the church would receive it. I didn't know how I would exist and I gave some thoughts to maybe coming back up to New York as soon as I could. So I was surprised that I was reluctant to leave. I thought I would be ready to leave. But I remember looking back in the Jarvey room that I had entered when we first came and thinking that uh, my life had changed in ways that I really couldn't imagine. I didn't think in these terms, but I, I thought to myself, I don't know that I can go home again. I don't know that I can do this. I've just had such a different experience and the world into which I'm going back will be so, so much the same I anticipated and that I, I remember thinking how much of a stand am I going to make on this when I get back? Will I have the wherewithal to say there's a whole new vision out there? I do remember saying goodbye to Reverend Knight I think part of his plan was to bring white Southerners up in the summer programs to help transform our view of ourselves and the world. But I remember him saying, uh, you're really a fine person and you've made a lot of difference uh, and I hope that you'll take what you've learned back to where you live and to wherever you go. We wanted this summer to be a place where you grew and learned about a different view and I think you have uh, accomplished that and I give thanks for that and for you. On the last night, Marjorie and I were together. We stayed together really probably till about four o'clock in the morning in the Jarvie room where I'd first entered. And we were 
making out some. As I said, this was the mid-60s, so there wasn't more than just first base or second base kind of stuff in the making out. But I rem remember just being really sad to leave her. I hadn't dated much. That was part of it. But I, she was also part of this strong shift in me, and, and that made a huge difference. So I attached some of that to her, which she deserved to have it attached to. And I remember being really sad. We said we would stay in touch with one another, and I was planning to come back up at Christmas. So it was really kind of a hard parting, but I thanked her for all that she had taught me during the summer. My mother met me at the airport in Memphis when I flew back in, and I had a lot longer hair, so she laughed at that. And on the way back, she talked with me about what I had experienced. And I said, well, mother, I think I've changed my mind on race and I don't know that I can go back to the way I was. And she said, well, Nibs, it's gonna cause you a lot of pain and a lot of hurt, and I hope you can uh, be very careful about what you do down here because people don't like to hear what you're talking about. I do remember we stopped for lunch in Tunica in a place called the Blue and White Cafe, and we walked into the cafe, and I had hair down to my shoulders, and I noticed it was a segregated cafe. This was 1966, and I, um, noticed a lot of people looking at me and I told my mother, I said, mother, they're not going to serve us here because of my hair. And she kind of laughed it off, but they didn't serve us. And so as we got back in the car to go on to Helena, she said, you see what I mean? People already know. So on the way uh, home between uh, Tunica and Helena, I said, well, mother, there's one other thing you need to know. I, I'm, I'm dating a black woman up there. And she said, oh, Nibs, don't tell me that. I don't want to know that. You can't do that. It'll never be accepted. And I said, well, I don't know what's going to happen with it, but I just wanted to let you know. She said, well, I know, I know you're hard, and I know you're a kind and loving person, but I just hope you won't take this very far. It won't do any good for either of you. But I told her I was going to stick with it. As I think back on it, she could have made it a lot tougher for me than she did. But I, the other thing that I remember is I could not wait to go and tell the elders of my Presbyterian church about my experience because I decided that I did want to affirm it and I did want to help them understand the whole new world because I thought when I came back to Helena at the end of that summer that their problem and the problem of all the white folks who had taught me white supremacy was ignorance. They just didn't know. They hadn't taken the time to get to know black people and that I'd been fortunate to do it, so I was going to tell them that. My friend David Billings also uh, was going to do the same thing at his Baptist church. So I met with the elders at First Presbyterian Church. Uh, there was an office with a big oblong uh, cherry dark wood table. And I think there were about seven or eight elders, maybe out of about 12, who were there, all of them men at this time, no women allowed to be ordained. But I met with the elders, the clerk of the session had taught me in Sunday school, all of them had taught me and had been mentors to me. So I felt like I would get a good reception as I went in and I was at the head of the table and they were sitting around. I remember the clerk of the session asking me, he said, well, we're glad you're back, Nibs, and we want to hear about your experience. I've heard from your mother that you had quite a time there and that you want to talk with us about it and we're glad to talk with you. So we'll just turn it over to you and then uh, tell us about your experience and then we'll ask you some questions. And so I, I began to talk with them, I guess probably 20 minutes to tell them my experience and 
how I'd experienced black leadership and black people. I didn't tell them I was dating a black woman because I didn't want to go down into that rabbit trail, but I told them that I'd experienced black folk as human beings and it really had changed my life and that the church needed to understand that the black people leading in Helena were people just like us. And I hope that we could find a way to work together and to begin to change things. So I said, I'll be glad to talk with you about some ideas that I have for changing things and for finding ways to be together and seeing one another as sisters and brothers. And that was met with stone cold silence. Not many people would look me in the eyes. I looked around the room and waited for a response. And then the clerk said, Uh, Nibs, we appreciate you taking the time to do this, and we're glad you had a good experience, but we don't believe that what you experienced is true. We don't uh, believe we can do that down here because life down here is not like life is up in New York. And another man on the session asked me, he said, well, it sounds like to me that you've gone up north and been Yankee-fied. We've had a lot of white Uh, youth and young adults go up north and they get a different view from the way the world really is and especially the world here. So we won't be doing anything of that. Uh, We're sorry, but we, we just can't do that. It's not possible here. And then a third man said, and we don't want to do it either. I was shocked. These were really important people to me. They had been parenting figures to me. They'd taken me to baseball games, fishing, all kinds of things. They had stepped into the breach for a guy whose father was absent and they had done so many things for me. I had expected them to have a little resistance. I had expected them to say, well, it's going to take some time. So I, I was shocked. I was hurt. Not only had they rejected my vision, I thought they had rejected me. So it opened up a deep chasm in my heart about the church. And so I dropped out of that church and the church for several years because I associated what they said and thought with the racism that I experienced. And it was a tough experience for me because the the church had been so important to me and it was hard to feel that these parental figures were now rejecting me. Um, It was tough. And I talked with David and he had the same experience at his church. And we began to see that this white supremacy was not just an individual issue, not just a matter of ignorance. It was a living, breathing organism, a powerful system passed down from generation to generation. And now we had stepped into wrestling with that system in our own hearts and in the community and in the larger world. I did go back to college in Memphis that fall and it was different and I was different. Indeed, my white roommate from Mississippi told me that I probably need to go on back up to New York. He didn't say this in a mean way, but in a protective way. He didn't think that I could survive or thrive in the white supremacist South. I made a point that year of acquainting myself with some of the few black students on campus. I think there were three or four out of about 1,500 people. Once I began to sit with and try to get to know uh, some of the black guys, I didn't do it with the black women. There were about four students. Uh, One of my white friends told me I was getting a reputation as being really radical on the campus because that kind of interaction you didn't do. I was astonished on one level because I felt like I wasn't doing a lot. I I was getting to know some people. I responded to the person, you're saying I'm getting a radical reputation because I'm getting to know some students on campus. They're black students, I know, but that's not very radical. And they responded, well, uh, we don't do things like that around here. 
A couple of the black friends that I made, one was a football player on the team, and I remember uh, in one of the games they played at the college, uh, it was obviously uh, vastly white uh, folk on the teams. My friend got really harassed a lot and uh, hit a lot because he was the only black player on the team. And I remember him coming off uh, the field and really being really upset. And I wondered whether I should go and talk with him since I was the race of the folk who'd been harassing him. But I did. And he said, I just don't think I can take this much longer. I, I just don't know if I can do this. It's too hard. I kind of understood that. I mean, I kind of understood how hard it might be, even out of my white privilege. Then later on in that same school year, that same student, I, had, I was not with him, but he was with some other white friends and uh, had gone to a local restaurant hangout that all the college students went and they refused to serve him. And I remember him coming back and telling me that and I said, well, we need to take some action. And he said, well, I, I'm ready to take some action. So we organized some students to do a boycott of the restaurant and picketed and we closed the uh, restaurant down. I was really shocked. I don't think I've had many victories like that, but I was really shocked uh, that the restaurant decided to close down mainly because it didn't want to be forced to serve black people. So I noticed how deeply that racism was, but also uh, some power that you could gather. I also worked in the campaign of the first black man to run for mayor of Memphis while I was in college. And again, I got a lot of feedback from a lot of white students that uh, this was a radical thing to do. And my response was, I'm just working in a political campaign. It is a black person, of course, he lost. And then I worked in the sanitation workers strike the event that brought Martin Luther King to Memphis and to his death. And I remember wrestling with one of my black friends because he was had contacts with the Invaders, which was a black youth group in Memphis, which was growing really tired of Martin Luther King's nonviolence. And I remember him pressing me and saying, Nibs, you're just a soft white person. You don't understand the issues that are involved here. And I know white people are never going to yield power, so we're going to have to take the power. I didn't realize then he was quoting Frederick Douglass, really, but at that point, I remember just being uh, really conflicted. And in fact, when King came to Memphis, uh, he had organized a march and the police had disrupted it and turned violent. And when he came back the night before he was assassinated, he was speaking at Mason Temple Church and I had an opportunity to go hear him. I remember disdainfully declining to do it because I thought I had begun to accept my black friend's analysis that he was old news and was not helpful. And obviously I've regretted that decision. When I came to Brooklyn uh, in 1966, I was pretty naive. I was captured by white supremacy. And by the time I left college in 1968, I changed pretty radically. It was really just two years later that I'd come such a long way. On one level, I was praising myself, but on another level, I was really amazed that I'd come from that distance where I wasn't quite sure who Martin Luther King was. I knew who he was, but I didn't know what he was about or whether I would accept it to the point that the night before he was assassinated and he gave a speech, I decided not to go because I thought he was no longer relevant to the struggle for black rights. And that was pretty amazing. Uh, I've, I've since decided I was wrong. He's always relevant to that kind of struggle. But I was stunned that I had made that kind of journey over a short period of time. And that really it had come about because I decided that I could no longer accept what the prevailing view was that I had been taught by people that I loved. I've been on this kind of journey ever since. 
I took a long route to the ministry and I was ordained as a Presbyterian pastor in 1975. My wife Caroline Leach was also a pastor and we became the first clergy couple in the former Southern Presbyterian Church. And I am so grateful to all of the people of all colors, black, white, Asian, Native American, Hispanic, who stepped into the breaches of my captivity to racism. That captivity is deeply rooted in my identity and try as I might, there's always a residue in there and I keep working to scour it out. I'm not talking about feeling guilty about it, I'm just talking about being realistic that it's there. But I'm so grateful to those guides and mentors and liberators who deemed me to be worthy of their efforts to try to liberate me. I'm always remembering the depth of my captivity, but I'm always remembering that there are opportunities for liberation and I give thanks for those who offer those to me and who say, I'm willing to invest time and energy with you. My life seems to be lived between those two poles of captivity and trying to find liberation. But I give thanks that that liberation that made such a difference, that eye-opening, heart-changing, consciousness-challenging experience in Brooklyn, it saved my life. which was another thing that we were raised with, was playing with white kids. You know, when you're real little, children don't know no better. They'll play with each other. You know, we don't know shit. We're just kids. But there are things I had to be taught. Uh, we couldn't play with white girls. Just couldn't. Right. Couldn't even put that into context of how serious that implication. Suppose you were pulled her Susie's hair and she yelled. <laughs> You know, in, in Riverdale, you know, or leave it to Beaver if that happens, somebody was, oh, quit, cut that out. Don't do, don't do that again. Right. You're naughty. If I did that, I, I could be lynched. Right. Yeah. Yeah, there was that strong system that everybody had to pay attention to. And so I think that was one of the reasons when I began to change, my mother uh, was afraid for me. And so that system terrorizing one to black people, but it also gave warnings to whites uh, not to cross the line. But I mean, as you said, we were not penalized nearly. Uh, it wasn't even in the same league as black folk, but there was a warning. There was a, a line you did not want to go over if you went that way. Uh, I remember my mother just saying, you don't want to go there because you don't know what will happen. That's it. If I can just shine a light on as they carry us This is Risk. This is Resistance Revival Chorus behind me now. I remember I first heard this song when it was sung by Sweet Honey in the Rock, this gorgeous, wonderful uh, a cappella women singing group in the 90s. They were kind of popular, but it's gorgeous to hear it here sung by a whole chorus of people. And that was just a little bit of this wonderful conversation that Ray Christian and Nib Stroop had about Nib's story, which is called We Who Believe in Freedom. And you can hear the whole conversation as a Patreon supporter of Risk at patreon.com slash risk. 
By the way, if you live in Philly or near Philly, you should pitch us a story for our March 2nd live show that we're going to be doing there. Or tell a friend near Philly to pitch us also. We have optional story themes to get your creative juices flowing. They are surprise twists or mesmerizing or delicious. And everything you need to know about pitching us is at risk-show.com slash submissions. And if you have any questions, I'm at Kevin at risk-show.com. We who believe in freedom cannot rest until it comes. We'll be right back. Folks, if you like good old-fashioned true crime mysteries, if you like stories where you feel like you're a detective finding clues, June's Journey is the name of this new game that you can play on your iPhone or your Android. You are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder. It's this well-to-do family in the 1920s living in a great Gatsby-like mansion. Each scene uncovers new aspects of the story. Some parts are in New York. Some parts are in Paris. There's all kinds of objects you're finding and trying to assess whether they're meaningful or not. You collect information, filling out your own photo album, and you're keeping track of all the characters. There's romance. There's scandalous family secrets. It feels like a really fun play or movie. And I've only made it through like five scenes, but I am told you could crack the case. All you need is an internet connection and downloading on iOS or Android. So discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now, imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowl & Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl & Branch's sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee, plus 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com code odyssey. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. We're back. Hey, y'all. This is Taj. I'm an editor and story coach at Risk. And for staff picks, I chose Sean O'Brien's story, Who's We? I came up with the name for this story, and I'm pretty proud because 
you wouldn't know it if you're just listening, but it's who's we spelt W-E-E, like whose pee-pee is this? Not pee-pee like wiener, but whose pee, whose urine is this? Somebody wee-wees on somebody, and there's kind of a twist about who did the wee-weeing. So, you know, you probably thought who's we like W-E, but I like to think of it as, um, you know, whose piss is this? This story is so fun. You guys are going to love this. Sean's a funny character, if you ask me. He's got a lot of personality. He's goofing off all the time. He's telling jokes. But he's also taking you somewhere very interesting. So it's dynamic. He's high. He's messed up. He's drunk. That's funny. He smoked embalming fluid. That's unusual. That really seems to have affected him. If it's your first time hearing this story... That's fantastic. You're gonna love it. It's a, it's full of twists and turns, and it's like a, it's like a kind of a mystery thriller where a guy is really messed up, and a funny guy too. So that adds a lot. And if it's your second time, that's great too. See, this story is a slightly unusual risk story, I think, and it's got like high repeat listening value. It's kind of like if you watch a mystery thriller movie where there's a big twist at the end, then you're like, oh, I want to go back and watch that again because now there's this new context and everything is completely different. So, yes, I think we're really fortunate, you and me and everyone living and breathing on the planet right now, that we get to goof around and listen to podcasts where silly people do very wild and crazy things and they're all messed up on drugs. That's a joy. <laughs> you guys don't need me to tell you about the story. Just listen to it. It's You're going to have a lot of fun. Get into it. Come on. I'm lucky enough to be a winner of the moth, but I'm also have the prestigious honor of scoring the lowest score in moth history. (laughs) 0.6. So I've won it and I've lost it. That's called range. If you're not familiar with the moth, it's a storytelling competition where everybody at the end sort of ends their story the same way where they have a revelation and they say, and then I realized I wasn't teaching those little kids. Those little kids were teaching me. It's exactly right. And then everybody in the audience, out of joy, throws up into their uh, moth tote bags. You know what I mean? I love stories. Beginning, middle, and end. Story arc. I love stories, too, man. I love stories. So, um, you ever hear somebody ever say, like, if I had a nickel for blah, 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 I'd have blah, blah, blah nickels, right? To be like mad dramatic. So if I had a nickel for every time that I was tricked into smoking embalming fluid, (laughs) I'd have two nickels. That's too many nickels. I don't even want those. You know what I mean? You have to think like, Sean, how have you been tricked into smoking a liquid twice? Easy. You buy your weed from a guy named Sleepy Keith. (laughs) Why is Keith so sleepy? He dips his weed in embalming fluid and thinks he's doing you a solid. Right, so 
for a very short period of my life, I tried being like, oh, maybe I'm going to try and go like smoking weed. Like I didn't smoke weed as a little kid. I didn't smoke weed as like an adolescent or, you know, a young adult. But for one time I was like, maybe that could be like a personality trait of mine. You know what I mean? Like, (laughs) so one night I was in like a little dive bar in Manhattan and uh, I was just like, you know, I was feeling crazy. I was like, you know what? New Sean, new year, new me, whatever. There was this guy and he was like selling weed. His name was Sleepy Keith. At the time, I didn't know that this was like a tainted weed and I bought like a little joint from him. And I went outside this little dive bar, right? And uh, I take a little... (laughs) And immediately it like tasted like metallic-y and like had like some sort of like chemical in it. And immediately I was like, oh no. I don't feel so good. And all of a sudden, I like ran into the bar. I was like, oh my God, something's off. I run into the bar. I run into the bathroom. I lock the door behind me. I run up to the mirror. I'm like, mirror, Sean, help me. He's like, I can't. I can only go this far. So I was just like, fine. So I'm just like washing my face and like, I'm like trying to get like left from right. I'm like so messed up. Everything is spinning around me. I'm like Sleepy Keith, you know, E2 Brute. You know what I mean? Like Sleepy Keith, really, you know, E2 Sleepy Keith. And I'm like, oh boy. And like, I don't know what's going on. And I'm trying to get my bearings. I'm splashing water on my face. I'm like, oh boy, I just got to get out of this situation. Just jump in an Uber and whisk myself home, right? So I'm like, okay, I go back out. But things in the bar are dramatically different than when I left them. The lights are off, the gates are down, the music's off, and there's just a bartender, right? And she's counting money. And I never forget what she said to me. Because I said, hey, and she goes, ah! (laughs) And all of a sudden I was just like, how long have I been in there for? She goes, I don't know, four hours? I was like, whoa, me and Mira Sean can really gab. You know what I mean? Either that or I was taking a schnap. You guys know what a schnap is? Shit nap. I, I was just like, oh boy, I've been, you know, I've been schnapping all night. So I was just like, I gotta go home, right? So I whisked myself home and I was just like, oh my God, I'm never buying weed from Sleepy Keith again. You know what I mean? But if you remember from the beginning of the part of the story, I got that other nickel. So... One week later, shamelessly, one week later, I'm outside of the same dive bar and I have this same grandoso dream of being like this like cool weed smoking dude. And my, this guy, my buddy Mitch is standing outside. He's just like, I'm going to smoke a weed. I'm like, yo, that's all I do now too. You know what I mean? Forgetting everything that just happened in the last week, right? So I'm like, all right. I like take a little puff. And I'm like, I'm like, who'd you get this from? And he's like, some dude named Keith. And oh no. And in literally the saddest deja vu ever, I ran back into the same bathroom. I'm like, Mira Sean. He's like, I'm disappointed. You know what I mean? Like he like turns his back on me. I'm like, oh my God. I'm like, I'm splashing water. I'm in the same exact situation that I was. And I was like, I cannot snap the night away. I have to just like, oh boy. I'm like trying to get my bearings again. I'm like, Sean, 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 Sean. So I like come out of the bathroom. I'm like, I'm not going to be sleeping in the bathroom all night again. So I come out of the bathroom and I like, remember like the old mother's adage, like of like starve a cold, feed a flu, drink off the embalming fluid. I was just like, oh, 
I'll just like drink a couple of beers, no problem, no problem. So like I go back up to the bar and I'm like trying to like weather the storm. Like if I just like have a couple of Bud Lights, I'll like, I'll feel fine or whatever. Right, so I like try and like take a sip of beer and I'm in a really bad spot. Like I guess from a third party point of view, like I'm really messed up, right? So this like group of guys come over and they're just like, yo, are you okay, blah, blah. And they sort of like take me under their arm and like we're hanging out and he's just like, it's okay, you'll be fine, blah, blah. Like we're chit-chatting with these guys and I sort of like push past it. Like I'm just like, okay, I think I feel okay. You know what I mean? Like we're having some beers. Now these guys are just like, yo, let's go to this other spot. We're gonna go like to this other bar down the street. I'm like, let's go. So now we're like bar hopping from bar to bar to bar with me and this new group of friends that I've never met in my life that just take me on. It's like entourage, but in bombing fluid. So just like bar hopping, boom, boom, boom. We're like taking shots, like, yo, Mike, yo, five shots, you know, five beers for me and my click. We're having a great time. We're like, we're like, we're just a bunch of wolves. We're howling at the moon outside. We're like doing that leapfrog thing, like over each other across the street. It's like a Benny Hill, like sped up. We're doing, you know, dizzy bats in the street, stuff like that. We're having a fucking great time. We go to this, like a nightclub and we get bottle service and the bottle service girl doesn't want to serve us. And I was like, yo, don't embarrass me in front of my friends. She's like, finally, like, gives us a bottle of vodka. And so we're like partying the whole night, right? At one point, like, I'm like crying to this guy. I'm just like, dude, my fucking dad. You know what I mean? Like, my fucking dad's not around. So like that, like, he's like, it's fine. And so like, the night is like sort of winding down. We've had this like whirlwind night. And like, I don't want the night to end. So I'm like, yo, let's go. We go to this little pizzeria. And I'm like, yo, I go up to the pizzeria, like little counter. I'm like, yo, I'm gonna need one pizza from me and one pizza for the squad. You know what I mean? So like the guy in the pizzeria place is just like, fine. He just casually makes two pizzas. He gives us these two pizzas, right? And the pizzeria guy's just like, yo, you can't stay here. You gotta like go. And I was like, no problem. I don't want the night to end, me and the click, right? I'm like, this is what we do. We're gonna go back to my place and have a little pizza party, you know what I mean? So I fire up an Uber, right? We all pile into the Uber. I got the pizzas on my lap. We give like the aux cord to like the Uber driver. And I'm like, yo, play like Jack Jams volume one. You know what I mean? Like this is the rhythm of the night, 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 my life. So, <laughs> so like we're like dancing, we're having a good time. We're singing in this car. One of the dudes that's sitting next to me pisses his pants in the backseat. He's having such a good time. It is all over the back seat. I've never been more okay with somebody else pissing my pants. Like, my pants are soaked too. I'm like, dude, whatever. We get back to my apartment. My studio apartment. My studio apartment, right? So we get inside and I'm like, yo, my then girlfriend, now wife, is sleeping in the studio, right? And I'm like, boys, we gotta be quiet, right? All right, because she's right over there, right? So we go inside and I'm just like, we're gonna have a little bit of pizza party, no big deal, she's a heavy sleeper. So, right, so we start, I go inside, right? And I start wheeling and dealing paper plates, boom, 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 boom. And the whole time like, boys, shh, shh, shh. You know, Marguerite, she's right over there, shh, shh, shh. And as I'm like scolding the boys for being too loud, I, indeed trip over a chair and fall on the ground, right? And now I make this huge bang. And I'd say that my 
lady came into the room, but she was already in the room. You know what I mean? She just came over to the situation. And she goes, what the fuck are you doing? And I was like, babe, I'm so sorry. We're so loud. She goes, who's we? And I look back and it's just a bunch of paper plates with pizza on it. And she goes, did you piss your pants? And if you've ever seen a movie like The Sixth Sense or Fight Club, I start snapping back into the entire night. And I am indeed not with a group of people. I am telling a bottle service girl, don't embarrass me in front of my friends. <laughs> and leapfrogging nobody and crying and doing this whole thing. I was indeed by myself that night. And that very moment, I realized that those imaginary friends were not teaching me. That I was teaching those imaginary friends. Thank you guys so much. I'm stuck in quicksand and I can't get out. I'm stuck in quicksand and I can't get out. I'm sorry, dear, I don't have a vine. I'm sorry, dear, I didn't see the sign. I'm stuck in quicksand and I can't get out. I shout and shout and scream and shout. But did I realize you got the headset on? Couldn't hear me if I was a nuclear bomb. I'm stuck in quicksand and I can't get out. I'm stuck in quicksand and I can't get out. <laughs> this is risk. This is Art Paul Schlosser behind me now because why not? Art Paul sent us a bunch of very unique songs. <laughs> and he seems to be quite a character. So look him up on Instagram at Art Paul Schlosser. And before that, we heard Sean O'Brien, who you can find at SOB on Instagram. His story, Who's We, was told at the Artichoke up in Beacon, New York back in 2019. Risk editor Taj Easton thought it was crucial to re-air this important PSA about smoking weed with embalming fluid in it and how you shouldn't do that. You know, I'm, it's 2023, you know, guys, enough with the smoking weed with embalming fluid in it. And before all that, we heard from our dear friend, Dr. Ray Christian, whose podcast, What's Ray Saying? is one you should definitely be listening to. And he was talking to Nibs Stroop, who writes his blog, Nibs Notes, at nibsnotes.blogspot.com. So be sure to check that out as well. We'll be right back. We're back. Well, folks, that is a wrap on Staff Picks 2022. So tune in next week for a round of brand new stories to really kick off 2023. We'll be hearing stories by Melinda Hill, Stephen Harder, and Adam Lowett, and so much more throughout the rest of the year. But today, I mean, folks... 
today's the day. Thank a rounds. It was just a couple of minutes before midnight when Bill waddled back into the living room carrying a huge bowl of butter-soaked popcorn. On TV, a lithe, young, spandex-clad cheerleader type was touting the benefits of the latest quick weight loss program. Oh, mind your own business, you tedious bimbo, yelled Bill as he gracefully eased his 360-pound frame onto a well-worn sofa. He considered this type of ubiquitous incursion into one's personal affairs to be a blatant affront to human dignity and a perfect example of how society was going to hell on a fast train. He swallowed a fistful of soggy popcorn and then took a long swig from a large plastic bottle of Diet Coke that was resting nearby. Next, the TV showed an elevated shot of a large crowd. It was Times Square. An illuminated clock overhead showed the time to be one minute before midnight. The camera began to pan across some of the faces in the crowd. Oh my God, exclaimed Bill. This absolutely must be the most amazingly subhuman collection of hooligans and ruffians ever assembled in one place. Someone, please summon the National Guard at once before this evil gang of terrorists completely destroys New York City, he pleaded while simultaneously pelting the screen with a few kernels of popcorn as if to keep the unruly mob at bay. A man with a microphone appeared and began to question people in the crowd about their New Year's resolutions. Bill snickered in disgust. I resolve to stop smoking, quit drinking, and to lose 180 pounds, he mimicked. And I also resolve to spend every waking hour doing my utmost best to promote peace, love, and universal understanding amongst all my fellow man, no matter what their race, religion, or national origin may be. And then, in order to emphasize his total conviction in the matter, he lifted one of his immense buttocks and let off a loud fart. The final seconds before the new year were ticking down. A big silver ball was sinking lazily toward the earth. The crowd chanted, ten, nine, eight. Bill's hand came to rest in the bottom of the nearly empty popcorn bowl. Seven, six, five. He nodded, four, three, two, one. Pandemonium on TV, streamers, flashbulbs, firecrackers everywhere. The faint, echoey strains of Auld Lang Syne blended in with the roar of the crowd and drifted around Bill's living room like the sound of a half-remembered dream. From the sofa, there came a soft, buzzing noise, not unlike a baby's snore. Bill had gone to sleep. <laughs> 